0: Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud Show. We are bringing back a friend of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, Chris Wall. If you listen to the Data Nut Show, well, of course, Chris and I hosted that show together for, oh, three-ish years or so. And put a lot of uh, great episodes about, oh, automation and cloud and storage and security and lots and lots and lots of topics that we covered. And Chris comes back today as a consultant, which is what he's doing these days, living in a very cloudy world Chris is all about modern application delivery and we go Ned man I it's like my brain has got to get rewired to think like Chris thinks these days about how to deliver an application there is so much going on that me coming from that legacy background are struggling to overcome I I don't know how you felt about it
1: I I still feel the struggle. I also came from a traditional infrastructure background. I still think about racking servers and cabling stuff up and installing an operating system. And like, this is so far removed from that. You have to just pull yourself completely out of that mindset and put yourself in the new mindset where it's all about the API and the pipeline. And that is the focus of our conversation.
0: Enjoy this discussion with Packet Pushers friend, Chris Wall. Chris Wall, welcome back to the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, man. The uh, that giant sucking sound all these months have been us missing your mellifluous voice. As the uh, you you and me did data knots for I don't know what was it three years something like that. Felt like thirty. <laughs> and what's with these big words? I don't know what that means.
2: What are you are you making fun of me? What's it means going you on? sound nice. I like oh, to listen to you. your
0: voice, my friend. That's that's Plus what I'm one. saying. That's what I'm saying. Heart emoji. So you are no longer working at a vendor, Chris. You were working at Rubrik for a long time, and now you're not. Now you're doing the consulting thing. And as you and I have been chatting about some of the projects that you've been working on, one of the things that has come up is your very strong opinions on cloud native, how apps yeah. should be delivered, and and so on. So I want to I wanna jump into that conversation with you. you for example, you, you have this idea that if, People were really doing cloud right. Uh, maybe they wouldn't have their negative, whiny opinions about cloud and and such. Uh, let's open up with that. <laughs> Man, I mean, you ask a question
2: with such a strong, you know, vibe to it already. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely see. I definitely see a lot of folks out there stating some things that I don't necessarily agree with with cloud. You know, related to cost and how to do it right, and on-prem is easier, and all that kind of stuff. It, it is a different way of thinking. And and like we've, I think we've all admitted over many years, if you approach it the same way you do on-prem, if you approach it like it's not this API-driven candy store in the sky that you can consume anything you want, pay a metered price for it. And yeah, there's things you have to learn, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and you can stand up some pretty cool services and do things at scale that you just can't do on-prem. There's there's magic there. And I think there's this sort of like cynical black hole that exists predominantly in social media that is like cloud is this horrible cost-sucking monster and you have to distill it down to a PaaS or or just go back on-prem or, you know, buy vendors widget X and it'll solve the pain. And really, it's just, let's just approach this thing cloud in a different manner that is way better that we should have been doing forever ago. And a lot of that stems from pipelines and automation and just putting in the time to do it right. Rant over. (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> somehow I suspect
1: that's not quite the end of the rant, but a good, a good place to pause. I, I, I've seen that same black hole of negativity. And the opinion that I've seen expressed the most is don't bother with IaaS because that's just recreating your data center. If you're doing cloud, you should be using SaaS whenever you can and PaaS if that's not an option. If you're going to IaaS, you're probably doing it wrong. Is that the wrong way to think about it? What, what are your
2: strong opinions regarding that sort of uh, idea? I'll be honest. I don't focus too much on IaaS, PaaS, SaaS, layer cake stuff. I feel like that predominantly is sourced out of the sort of classical vendor world of perspectives on cloud. I'm more looking at abstractions and APIs. So the, the the default rule that I believe works well is as you're working in cloud, start at the most abstracted layer and work your way down until you meet the requirements of the application. So in a lot of cases, I'm going to start with, you know, if it's AWS, Fargate and Lambda. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to go down to ECS or ECR or EC2 if I have to. But it's really just kind of going down that ladder to see what fits best and then using that layer. Uh, I don't think it's like you have to start everything's at the IaaS and then you graduate to PaaS. I think that's a very... (laughs) A very classical way of looking at architecture. It's more just what does the application need to do, and where does it fit in there pretty well, and then design it for that, and and do the things. It's it's not that really. It's not rocket science. It's, it's really not.
0: It, it's funny you put it that way. So I've been in a situation where I have I have a reason to build for one of my own businesses, uh, potentially a bunch of little websites that do different things, or maybe their functions. And I'm starting to realize, wait a minute, I rethink what I what I grew up with, which is client server there's a server it's got services running on it web servers and you know and so on and i throw that thinking out and i look at what i can consume from the cloud by breaking things down to their smallest components and i start with uh, you know, lambda you know for example does that solve the problem for me what does that look like the problem i have is just getting my head around it chris
2: well it's i'll i'll bring an analogy into it i i'm sure most people listening to this and especially in the technical world, love building with Lego. It's fun. You get a, a really easy to follow sheet of instructions. The, 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 pieces make sense. It's all these different modules. You can kind of build what's on the instructions or not, but typically you're trying to build what's in there. And I see some people are like, yeah, this is super cool. I love it. I get to build with my hands and put all these things together. That's the same thing. It's just, there's no instruction manual that says this is the end intent. You know, you're kind of defining what that is. And, and, Maybe if you think of it that way, it becomes a little bit easier. So using your Lambda example, sure, maybe you're writing function, you know, uh, functions and you're putting that in the cloud and saying this is the actual code. And then there's services to run batch. There's services to do cron. There's services to keep the logging or ingest event data or whatever. And you just put these things together just like you would with a really cool you know, Death Star Lego kit or something like that. And out pops the solution for what you're trying to build. And I think that's the fun part. And uh, I don't think that part gets enough attention,
0: really. There's an aspect here of... of control maybe where if you build it yourself, like I actually read a blog post that came off of hacker news of someone who just said, screw it. I'm going to build it on myself. I'm not jumping into AWS. It's too complex <laughs> or he's used it. And you know, feels that it's uh you know, too complex, et cetera. But as I boiled down that blog post of his, as I was reading it, it kind of came down to, to control, control over latency and, and predictability about certain things and, and so on where the rest of it. And this is a theme that comes up a lot as different people write about these services. It's too much, it's too complex, there's too many things going on, too many moving pieces, too many Lego bricks that are sitting out there. I have to snap together to make the solution. And it's not fun, it's it's actually a, a headache, seems to be what some people come across. And Chris, you're one of the few voices that I hear that are like, no, this is like the right way to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of that,
2: I think the the, the pleasantness of it and the success of it is going to depend on... Your attitude, your team's attitude, your organizational structure, how you approach. Are you a technical company or are you a company that has technical people? There's so many different ways to to slice and dice perspectives on this that I feel like the ones that genuinely sort of enjoy putting stuff in the cloud. And coming back to the main topic at some point, like pipelining all of these things are the ones who really get to enjoy what it's like to operate at this level because Really, 99% of the day-to-day is come up with new cool things and implement them, not run, run the ops. You know, in fact, it's kind of fun. You get to a point, I've got some folks I'm working with where the ops has kind of presented all the challenges that come day-to-day to the point where they've automated a lot of the solutions for them or just have, you know, Lambda functions fix things or triggers or whatever. And now it's like, oh, cool, a new problem. How do we automate this? We haven't <laughs> seen one of these in a while. You know, it becomes, it becomes a little more fun.
1: If I could extend the analogy you started with with Lego a little bit and sort of the the person who wants to make it themselves, that'd be sort of like whittling as opposed to using Lego. You start with like just like this block of wood and you're like, I'm going to whittle it down to something. Uh, But that's not reproducible, right? Lego is standardized. It's building blocks. It's reproducible. And you would use it on something like an assembly line, whereas whittling is like one person doing the thing. They're going to do it again. It's going to be a little bit different. That's great if you're making art. Not so great if you're making technology. I think the assembly line kind of lines up with the pipeline idea. And see, now I've I've built a segue. <laughs>
2: <laughs> subtle, subtle, Ned. Yeah, you look at even 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 modern video games today. Uh, there's you know if you're not into gaming, look up uh, things like Factorio and Satisfactory and um, Dyson Sphere Program, and all of these these video games are super popular with millions of downloads and whatnot. And you're really just taking things and stitching them together and automating them. So that some greater product is the sum of the individual components. And so there's obviously like people enjoy automating. People enjoy building pipelines and workflows and things like that. Because in some cases for me, I just love standing back and watching it work. I like <laughs> watching something do uh, like a little bird drinking out of the water. I think I could watch that for, for hours. because like, it's doing the thing. Uh, so I think there's a lot of fun there. But yes, pipelining, I think is where Perhaps these folks haven't dabbled into that or they have, and it just was set up in a funky way. But I think that's what it really enables the fun. Uh, and that's where, you know, if you're, if you're getting into cloud and cloudy things and automation, you're probably like building stuff by hand. You're putting together, you're like, okay, this is sort of cool. Maybe you're working as an individual and you're like, this is all great, but how does this actually work in the real world at scale with different teams, all pulling in different directions? And, and that's where pipelining kind of really comes in.
0: I interviewed a guy recently who leverages a pipeline for network automation, and their solution was to have a line of code that would need to get put into several different devices on their network to meet some new standard. And it was it was pipeline-driven in that they put the new line of code into the Git repository. There was a task that would fire periodically, detect that there's new code there, and then a process would kick off where that new artifact We'd have to get broken down so that the correct bit of code would go into each of the different devices, and it was all automated. Um, they were using Jenkins in this case to make all of that happen. All they did to start this process was put in the new thing, the new requirement, whatever it was, and the rest. And they built a bunch of you know, processes to make this happen. It kicked it off and uh, and drove it through. From there, when we talk about pipeline, when you talk about pipeline, I mean to say, Chris, is that what you're getting at, where it's an event-driven uh, architecture. Something happens, and then the pipeline takes over from there and drives some end result.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of ways you can do it. It really depends on are we talking about deploying infrastructure? Or are we talking about are we deploying code? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we actually building and deploying applications uh, or infrastructure? Although nowadays, that's a, a, that line is a little blurrier. But yeah, the, the idea is you have... You have a series of tasks that you've done manually back in the past, and you figured out, you know, this script will update this value. Oh, I can call this API with this Python script, etc. And you just have sort of an engine saying, when a change happens, typically you're changing code in a repository or updating a value of something, or it sees a commit on a GitHub repo or whatever. You know, run through this series of tasks, run the script, run the Python script, update the thing, return a status code. If it's all great, let me know. We're good. And then... You know, copy the files over and deploy them, something like that. Or with the infrastructure world, it's uh, usually piles of YAML. When they get updated, <laughs> the YAML is different, and some sort of engine interprets that difference and and makes that happen uh, in terms of CRUD operations for for cloud resources. But the, the 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 end result is the same. There's there's a series of tasks that you've defined. Typically, it's it's scripts in Bash or or Python or something like that. Uh, that when some sort of change is detected, these scripts are enacted or these frameworks are invoked, responses come back saying good, bad. And as long as things are good, it kind of rolls through until uh, until the the end is done, you know, the application is
0: deployed or the resources is built. Responses, good, bad. That will, could include testing along the way? It should.
2: Dang it, <laughs> if you don't have tests in there. Bad mojo. Yes, yeah. I mean, the, it's it's the idea that, you're still running probably some some unit tests locally. or doing the during the broad, broad uh, build process. Pardon me, but uh, after that, it's the integration testing. You know, if, if I make this change, does this still talk to the things it's supposed to talk to? And then functional testing, like does the actual end result from a user perspective? Does this does this thing work? Does does it do what it's supposed to do? And you got performance testing and data validation and a whole bunch of other things you can add. It's really just uh, I put it once on Twitter as like just <laughs> make sure the change does the things I want it to do, nothing blows up. Uh, And it's just a, a code way of expressing that using scripts and things.
1: Now, you mentioned kind of the line between infrastructure and application code is blurring a little bit. Like, you know, a developer might write the YAML that's part of their Kubernetes deployment as well as write the code to go into the container. Where would you draw the line or, or does it make sense to draw a line between infrastructure and app code? And, and would you keep them in the same repository, separate them? Kind of, what's, what's your
2: strategy there? I'd probably take a step back. And, you know, I think tactically it's like, is it infra? Is it app? You know, what do I do with it? But more abstractly, I think it's um, what can we do to make this application holistically deployable as a module? How do I take everything about this application and reduce the dependencies on something else? So, such that it can be deployed uh, and hopefully deployed in a way that is scalable. You know, I'm, I'm managing a fleet of these things, whatever they are. And that's kind of where we're going in, in some cases, in more advanced cases. I think there's folks that have no pipelining, no automation, and they're going to say, what? And that's fine if you're if you're new to this. It's perfectly fine to start by completely abstracting your infra and your application pipelines. Um, and I don't think they should all be blurred. But the work I've been doing more recently is how do we make the application itself a fully deployable unit, including every dependencies for infrastructure, including any, you know, third party linkages that must be connected or tokens. And, and that's the idea that, uh, that I think DevOps is trying to bring purely like a, you know, distill it down to the unicorn tier itself. That's, that's what we're going for is you've got teams with domain knowledge on both sides, building a package that is the deployable, like that's it.
0: Getting to something that's really fresh on my mind because, no lie, 10 minutes before we started recording, I was finishing off a blog post addressing a question that had come up on uh, our Packet Pushers YouTube channel about stretching layer two between data centers. Which is this archaic requirement for archaic applications where, oh, we got to keep the IP address the same, but we got to have that uh, you know, application availability. So we need to be able to move that IP between data centers, which is stupid from a network design perspective. It's something you should never do. But because that requirement is so often, it pops up. Businesses know we got to be able to do that. The networking industry has had to come up with all these different solutions where you can. Safely, for some definition of safely, stretch layer two between uh, the two data centers, which isn't the point. Uh, The point is, why are we still in 2021 having to support applications that have been deployed in this archaic, ancient way? Chris, you're talking about building an application as an artifact that you can deploy anywhere on any infrastructure using a pipeline and have that infrastructure be ephemeral, potentially. It could move around. It can scale uh, elastically and have all this flexibility. And yet, there's so many businesses out there that are mired in this past of, I'm still married to a specific IP address, for crying out loud. It's just... It makes me a little crazy to have that on the one side in IT, and Chris, you as a representative of kind of the other side, where we've done all of this modern automation. What's ha- Why do we have this divide, Chris? Do you have a take on this?
2: I feel like you really got a lot off your chest there, man. <laughs> <Right> <laughs> <cathartic>. <laughs> uh, layer, layer two, forever the, the demon that will not go away. Um, I think it's... I will say I work with folks where they're in a legacy situation for for reasons, right? They're a Legacy means financially viable, right? It's not legacy if it's not making money or doing something that <laughs> helps make money. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem is that it's persisted for so long because it's successful. Success is probably one of the antithesis of technical progress, you know, because you're kind of like, oh, it works. Don't change it or don't change it materially. Uh, and that's that's tough. Like who wants to work on that? If you're this DevOps highly paid requested full stack unicorn? Like, are you going to say, Oh man, really want to go play with I series now and figure out how to, you know, reduce some sort of layer two thing. Uh, so I think it's partially that. And and even back in the day when, when I first started at Rubrik, it was like, everyone's like, ah, backup so boring. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, the actual process of backup kind of is, but the technology could be interesting. Uh, so I think perhaps we need to make the, technical challenges more interesting or visible or higher paid because if you if you you know just cram people into an environment where they're working with legacy and not giving them time resources training mm. you know other investments to get them at that new level it's not going to happen or you just got that one person or small group of people that they've got you held hostage they know the system and it's a very archaic old one and there's no way to replace those folks and they're holding you hostage i've seen that a few times
1: it's scary to think that a lot of those folks are going to start aging out and mm-hmm. they're going to leave with that knowledge in their head and then the people who are still need to run that system and be like uh does anybody know iSeries and COBOL? because we kind of need that right now uh so i i don't know what's gonna i feel like a lot of those applications are going to be refreshed not because the business wants to
2: because the knowledge has left the building I don't know. There's, there's, I see reports of like COBOL and Fortran rising in popularity again. So <laughs> maybe what we'll see is, um, a new masterclass in, you know, mastering these old technologies and really understanding the point where we can bring them to something a little bit more modern. Cause I think you need someone with a, fir- a foot firmly planted in both worlds and that's tough.
0: Well, well, tough, tough. Why? Cause I could argue on the one hand, it's just new technology. That's what we technologists do. We learn new stuff. So, but, you know, the, the the flip side of that argument and the one I actually face myself is it's just so bloody much to keep up with. So many, like if you look at just networking, which is the domain I specialize in, there's new stuff coming along constantly to keep up with. And most of the solutions are, are difficult to get your head around with a lot of details. So trying to also stretch to everything that's required to get a proper handle on automation is a bit challenging. So I guess I can see it both ways. Is that your point, Chris, about why it's hard or... I would say probably
2: 20% technology challenge but think about the systems that are in place to support those systems legacy systems you know they're they're typically not very agile <laughs> they're not very exciting so you know if you're having to do a change request once every 6 months to put some code into production you're going to peace out that's not that's not fun you know it's just not what you're looking for probably if you've got a foot planted in the let's move things forward world so it just it takes shakeups at higher levels and it takes investments that that cause disruption internally and those will happen. But uh, beyond that, I think folks see the advantage of the other side and they'll they'll pull what they need from it and move forward. What are we doing with these modern
1: applications to ensure that they're not going to calcify the same way that these older applications did? I know we've got like Shiny DevOps and Agile and all that, but my concern is that at a certain point, it'll start calcifying and just becoming, oh, this is the way we do it and something new will come out and we won't be able to make the move to that newer technology or that newer
2: uh, concept or idea. I think broadly speaking, it's always hard to fight, as you say, calcification across any, any sort of tech, right? The moment you build it, it starts to get old. But um, the difference to me was historically, experimentation and deployment was hard, long and expensive. And now those things are all you know, quick, easy and cheap. So it, it's just so much easier to try things, and, and so many people are trying all these different things all at the same time. It's almost like we're you know, the, the million monkeys trying to write a novel, mm-hmm. and some of us are going to randomly get it right. And so actually, I think many people will. And so now you've seen, like, even in containers, you know, there's so many different opinions on how to deploy things. Uh, there's so many different places you can deploy them. You can put it on old stuff. You know, You put new stuff. So I think that helps and uh, just good hygiene if you've got a good pipeline in place wink nod finger gun (laughs) Uh, it's way easier to stay modern because you're having to worry about dependency mapping and where your artifacts are going and what versions you have for your framework and and it's really easy to put pieces in and take other pieces out so i think that's a pretty big
0: win okay develop that idea in more detail uh, with the pipeline you just made it you made the case that the pipeline gives me this flexibility where I can substitute pieces and parts of my process uh, in and out, as opposed to what? What was I doing before if I didn't have a pipeline? And moving to a pipeline means I've got all this flexibility. It almost sounds magical.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot more. A lot of what I'm talking about for that modularity exists. It, it lends itself more to the application development world. But even in the infrastructure world, you know, let's say that you're you know, using Terraform to write some code to deploy stuff in Amazon. And you're using some security linting tools or some checking tools. You can very easily remove one, add another one, make a rule so that it checks a third, this particular set of tests or environments in this region or not. You can play around with those different tools, make them so that they're not, it's not dependent on a result of positive for the tool to progress the pipeline. And you can even say, you know what, this pipeline is currently going to USC's one what happens if I go to US West 2? What's Oregon looking like today? How would it deploy or what would it look like? Or give me a report. Uh, So there's lots you can do to kind of divert not only how the pipeline builds itself, but also where does it output its artifacts and and build its resources.
1: I think I want to take a step back here. Uh, For folks that are not super familiar with the pipeline, we're throwing around terminology (laughs) like crazy. (laughs) I just want to step back. So like, what are the primary components of a pipeline uh, and some of the terminology
2: that you're using, like artifacts and CI. Yeah, I mean, a pipeline is just a it's a rules engine. It's it's a it's a loop, and it just it, you basically tell the the rules engine, you know, like a Jenkins or something like that. Hey, you know what? I've got this. Uh, I've got this pile of source information. You know, source code uh, could just be you know Bash script or YAML, or in case of Terraform, it's going to be HCL two. And uh, hey, you know what? Anytime you see a change, uh, run this—you know—run the Terraform code to do a plan, and then email that to me. You know, it could be a really basic pipeline, uh, and it's going to do all that work. And continuous continuous integration (CI), you know, that's a, that's a type of pipeline. You can have a CI pipeline, a CD pipeline for deployment or development. There's all all those different ways, but really, it's just it's just a rules engine that goes through a list of tasks to perform, and then at the end, you know, it says success or failure it's not fancy
1: and this was mostly born out of the application development world and not so much the infrastructure development world so like what are some of the challenges in moving the same idea and paradigm over to the infrastructure world where things aren't quite as flexible maybe as they are in app development
2: (laughs) uh i i don't know i feel like if, if if let me, give you, let me give you an opinion here first. If you're working with someone that can't fit into your pipeline because they don't have an API or whatever module you're looking for, like break up with them. They ain't worth the relationship, <laughs> right? Level that up. Find someone who will, who will work oh. with your pipeline. So uh, prioritize your pipeline because um, that's, that's honestly where the gold is. But as, as far as that, like the, the challenges that, let me start with this. The challenges we're trying to solve with pipelining is really just when you deploy something into any environment, we'll say cloud as the example, you probably wanna make sure that it's adhering to security best practices, that you're not doing anything kind of like goofy, that your team can see what you're doing, that you can repeat the process so you can very quickly experiment in case you wanna make changes. You really wanna capture all of that in code. And that's not anything new, like even if you were working in VMware back in the day, we had Onyx, which would capture the PowerCLI commands Various cloud providers today have different things to capture the commands you're doing and and make that happen. So it's really just we want we want to capture all the steps that we're taking, all the clicks and API calls and whatever that that happen to deploy a resource in the cloud, and codify that and turn it into you know here's a YAML file because YAML is good on people's eyeballs, but horrible (laughs) on their souls. (laughs) And then that's what it is. You're, you're just you're it's the same thing we were kind of trying to do back in the config management days with Puppet and Chef was like, hey, when you have this server come up, go ahead and install SQL and here's the password for it and all that kind of jazz. It's just now we're saying, hey, when you're gonna build the server that's gonna run, you know, the, the database server or whatever, go, you know, here's where I want it, and this is the instance type, and you know, all the configuration details are part of that because it's infrastructure as code being put into a pipeline. Uh and then you can go from there because if you like what you have. You can copy it and now it's in two regions or say it go to all the regions or give it to somebody and say, hey, this is exactly how I want you to deploy your stuff. Just run this. You know, you can you can <laughs> hand it out. Uh, so it's it gives you a lot of flexibility.
1: Right, right. The, the other thing that I think about when it comes to pipelines is testing, right? There's a lot of testing that you should probably be doing. You, you mentioned, you know, security best practices or some sort of linting but it, it's hard to see how something like unit testing in the world of applications maps to infrastructure. Cause like in applications, I'm probably unit testing my functions. So I have a function and here's a bunch of inputs. I throw at it. Did it give me the right outputs? Awesome. I'm happy with that function. I've unit tested it. Infrastructure. I deployed a uh, VNet. It's there or it isn't like, I, I don't, how do you unit test infrastructure?
2: I <laughs> This is my question. Yeah, I'm, Testing is certainly the most wild west part of infrastructure pipelining today, because you know unit testing. Unit testing, honestly, I think is sort of handled. I think you can use formatters and whatnot, really, just to tell like like that's kind of handled by the engine. Thankfully, mm. we don't have to deal with too much of that, and it's going to tell you that you you know have an invalid config or something like that. I, I feel like that's the unit te- unit test version of making sure that will the code compile, like will the config work. Um, Everything else to me is more about integration and functional testing. Because integration testing is, hey, if I make this change, do all the other components still talk to my thing? You know, if I make this this networking change, does it break my transit gateway? Does it break my security groups? Does it break whatever else? Uh, And to me, that's a powerful thing of pipelining because you can literally say, like in my my example, I have a whole region in Amazon where I just test stuff. Uh, There's nothing... Permanent in there, but before I run a pipeline that would deploy to East or West or EU or something like that, it just tosses it over to US West One because it's kind of like the worst region; uh, It doesn't <laughs> really get used a lot. Like I'm um, West Two or East East One; those are kind of my my home base. But the point being, I can I know I can instantiate kind of anything from from ground up, and then I can run my tests there. So for me, I just have like a test region. If you had a more in, a complex environment, you'd have test accounts. So before you deploy into a particular region or whatever, it would go through a test account and do a full deploy. And maybe there's some some permanent infrastructure or some on-demand infrastructure that got deployed so that you can do these tests. That's not the end of the world. It just adds more complexity. Uh, all the other testing, I feel like security testing, linting, best practices, um, that's where the open source community has really jumped in to provide a, a leadership flag, you know, like. Chekhov comes to mind from BridgeCrew. They just got bought by Palo Alto recently. But uh, it's an open source tool that literally goes through, uh, as of version 2.0, like 700 plus rules, dependency maps, all the things you're going to build. I mean, there's, there's some really good, absolutely free tools. And you can put those directly in your pipeline. And it's just like, poof, value added from eight lines of YAML.
0: So why not? We pause the episode for a bit of training talk. Training with CBT Nuggets. If you're a Day 2 Cloud listener, you are, you're listening to the podcast right now, then you're probably the sort of person who likes to keep up your skills, as am I. Now, here's the thing about cloud is I've dug into it over the last few years. It is the same as on-prem, but it's different. The networking is the same, but different due to all these operational constraints you don't expect. And just when you have your favorite way to set up your cloud environment, the cloud provider changes things or offers a new service that makes you rethink what you've already built. So how do you keep up? Training. Now, this is an ad for a training companies. So what did you think I was going to say? Obviously, training. And not just because sponsor CBT Nuggets wants your business, but also because training is how I've kept up with emerging technology over the decades. I believe in the power of smart instructors telling me all about the new tech so that I can walk into a conference room as a consultant or project lead and confidently position a technology to business stakeholders and financial decision makers. You want to be smarter about cloud? CBT Nuggets has a lot of offerings for you from absolutely absolute beginner material to courses covering AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud skills. Let's say you want to go narrow on a specific topic. Okay. For example, there is a two-hour course on Azure security. Maybe you want to go big. Alrighty then, there is a 42-hour AWS certified SysOps administrator course, and there's a lot more cloud training offerings in the CBT Nuggets catalog. I just gave you a couple of examples to whet your appetite. In fact, CBT Nuggets is adding 40 hours of new content every week, and they help you master your studies with available virtual labs and accountability coaching. All right, I'm going to I'm gonna shut up now and get to the part that you actually care about, which is the special offer of free stuff that you get from CBT Nuggets because you listened to this entire spot, you awesome human. First, visit cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. There you will find that CBT Nuggets is running a free learner offer. They've made portions of their most popular courses free. Just sign up with your Google account and start training. This free learner program is a great way to give CBT Nuggets a try. Now, as a bonus, everyone who signs up as a free learner – will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription to CBT Nuggets. So this is a no-brainer to me. Just go do it, cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. And now, back to the podcast that I so rudely interrupted. What what pipeline tools do you favor? We've mentioned Jenkins just because it is sort of a, a standard. A lot of people use it. What other ones do you use, Chris?
2: I like Jenkins gets a lot of undue hate. I mean, it's Java, and that part deserves a little bit of like, you know, eyebrow raise. But it's it was a pioneer. It was a really good tool. Um, it's it's trying to continue to be modern. It's not something I use though very frequently. Mm-hmm. I use a lot of uh GitLab. GitLab CI is a pretty cool pipeline tool. It's probably my favorite if you're looking to do infrastructure and you don't want to use HashiCorp's. Uh what is it? Their their cloud platform HCP. Right. Um, so GitLab CI is kind of nice. And then I use a lot of internal tools uh, various, various places where people are using internal pipelining tools. But a lot of them are pretty much the same. You know, you define, you define a flow and it handles the flow for you uh, based off some sort of source repository. Uh, if you're looking for something else, like other ones I'd recommend, GitHub Actions is pretty dope. Uh, it's more like a marketplace of things you can do which is nice if you don't know what you're doing and you want a marketplace but when you don't want the marketplace you just want to write your own stuff it's kind of frustrating i'm i'm not you know <laughs> <laughs> and um probably the last one that that you're going to see quite a bit would be circle ci mm. uh, it's very heavily used for application um pipelining
1: yeah that that, that is where i've seen circle ci the most is when i've been helping with some app development stuff and Yep, that there's always that Circle CI like YAML file in in the root of the repository. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there yeah. it is.
0: Well, you said a couple of things there, talking through those tools. On the one hand, I th- I think I heard you say it doesn't matter; they all do about the same thing. You know, pick one. You know, uh, on the other hand, there are certain limitations depending on which one you pick. You mentioned GitHub Actions. Well, if the the Lego you want to snap into your pipeline isn't in their ecosystem, it can be more difficult or maybe impossible to get that done?
2: Uh, you can you can write your own. I just, um, I both like, and it, backing up for a moment, yes, every pipeline does have things it's good at. You know, like GitLab CI, really good at both. It, you know, I would say it's better at infrastructure than apps, but good at both. Circle, great at apps, not, not what I would use with infra. Uh, GitHub Actions, I feel like it's great as an integration layer with your public source code repository or even in a private one. But it's not really what I I want to use for you know deploying my infrastructure. You know I just I just feel like it doesn't suit my use case. So they're they're all created equal in that you put in a config, pretty much always YAML, and out comes some sort of some task workflow, which is the pipeline. But different based on what they integrate with, what they have templates and and starter kits for, and what they natively support. Like do they natively support Terraform, or do I have to invoke Terraform and kind of tell it what to do? Uh, those are those are big differences.
1: Another big point of difference I've seen is if you need to deploy things on premises behind a firewall, you're going to need some sort of runner or or builder machine that's inside your network deploying those resources and some of the solutions don't really have uh, an internal runner option. I don't think GitHub Actions has a way to invoke an, an internal builder uh, in your network. At least I haven't seen that. They Maybe do. GitHub it. Do that yeah. is it like GitHub Enterprise
2: or something? Uh, just GitHub Actions. You can do a self-hosted runner, so you can just deploy oh, okay. it as an agent.
1: Yeah. Okay, and that just reaches out and checks for jobs.
2: Yeah, well, it just connects in, and then that's that's one of your runners that that runs. So when you have a when you have a job that needs, you know, that on-prem, you know, only the reason I know is we were connecting back to an on-prem device to do a demo back in the day. I didn't write the code, <laughs> but uh, that's when one of my colleagues is like, yeah, there's an on-prem runner, and so does you know GitLab CI has one, and and. You know, most of them do have some sort of way to connect in, and you run it on your bare metal or your instance. In fact, one of the cool things, uh, if we look at GitLab CI that I like, is you can deploy their runner into your cloud provider like AWS, and then apply a role to the runner, and then that that role then inherits the ability to do what you need it to do. So there's no credentials passed. It's literally just calling you know commands into you know this runner that's executing them in a containerized fashion uh, on that runner using their their proprietary application. And then it's doing what it can based on the role assigned to the instance. So there's lots of ways you can get things even into into public cloud environments that are kind of, quote, behind the firewall uh, (laughs) to do the things.
1: And another thing that I've been thinking about is how you manage something that's a shared service, like a shared, long-term, long-lived service that a bunch of other applications are dependent on. Something like DNS or Active Directory, Uh, heaven help us all, is there a place for pipelining and automation with those types of services or is that still sort of manual and living in the infrastructure old days?
2: No, no, absolutely automate those things. And those typically fall into what's called a landing zone, which is a way that you deploy, typically it's, hey, I have a deployment into a cloud provider that has the master account or the, the, the main account. Set up the you know organizational units and however the organization needs to be set up is is there all the guardrails SSO identity you know that's typically what you'd want to build out because that adheres to the best practices of that cloud provider and a lot of those are, are actual services that they provide where you say hey I never want this particular you know no one should be able to SSH into this environment no one should be able to deploy this particular type of instance. And then that's what, you know, that's held everywhere, which is what I mean by the sort of best practices. Um, and then there you go. That's, that's an automated fashion. It's being controlled typically by whatever's doing that, you know, for Amazon, that would be organizations and control tower. And then, and then that's like your, your root set of infrastructure that only hopefully a very small people people have access to it. They're not <laughs> logging on using that account, but that's you stop doing it. Don't lo- <laughs> assume the role. <laughs> So so something like that, for sure. And then you bring up a point that you're talking about managing services. Those services are actually kind of easy because people don't rely on them, but not a lot of people are trying to contribute or change them, right? DNS, they want DNS to work, but they don't have an opinion on how you do it. As long as it <laughs> resolves, they're good. Imagine deploying services in a pipeline, automated, group, kind of collaborative fashion, that are downstream and upstream dependencies, as well as being hit by customers Either directly or indirectly. Like now, now we're getting hard, uh, and that's where these things like pipelines become quintessential, as well as publishing. What does my dependency do? You know, what does my artifact do? Who am I dependent to? Who's dependent upon me? That's where that's where it really kind of starts to kind of bend your mind. So if you're if you're like, oh man, pipelining Active Directory or you know the integration for it or SCPs in in, in AWS is difficult you got the easy, easy end of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> like Honestly, this is the, the easier, less troublesome part. Try, you know, really go make a friend in the development world and that has to deploy a service, talk to them. And uh, maybe you'll learn a thing or two, or at least have some appreciation for pain. Right,
1: right. Because it's not just the internal integration of the app itself. It's the larger world that app lives in and all the dependencies that other apps have on it to get work done. Is that part of the testing that happens in a pipeline or that testing happens somewhere else where you're doing like full end-to-end testing for your application and all its dependencies?
2: It's pretty rare to see an end-to-end dependency test just because it would require so many teams to kind of put something together. Instead, what you would do is you publish your version your releases, and you you strongly <laughs> request that people use both semantic versioning as well as version version specific dependencies uh, and that gives you the freedom you can make changes and roll them forward and um, you know if somebody down or upstream is saying this isn't working, it doesn't take them down. They can still be pinned or or adhering to a previous version, and you can kind of work that out. so they can they can sort of test based on what you release and you can have them you know kind of work with that. Right, it's a lot right. more it, contractual than it is all of us in the same page because you're releasing it all <laughs> sorts of different times. There's no way you can orchestrate, okay, Friday's the test day. Not going <laughs> to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work out. It kind of reminds me of when I'm using Terraform in modules and I, I need to pin my module that I'm using to a certain version or version range because I know that someone's going to put out a new version of that module and it might break something in my Terraform deployment. And if I don't yeah. pin the the providers and the modules to the version that I know works, then I'm in trouble. And then when I do want to move to the newer version, hey, maybe that's something that happens in a pipeline. I change the version that kicks off a pipeline that tests
2: that newer version in the context of my deployment. Totally, totally. And that's bit me in the butt. Like the way I learned about that Ned was I was using GitHub Actions and when it very first came out and I said, yeah, just load the latest Terraform apply, you know, action. And, uh, which was, I figured, you know, I don't care about the action from the Terraform side. I just said, I want the latest release. Well, there mm-hmm. was a bug in one of the, the commits that were made where latest release included beta. So all of a sudden, all of my Terraform code was running a beta release, which updated all my state information to the beta release. Mm. Um, and none of my you know, regular stuff would work anymore. So I was like, you know what, this is why people pin dependencies, or at least set ranges for dependencies. <laughs> now I get it.
1: <laughs> oh, oh getting it. That bit me, too, because all of my example exercise files for my Plural site course originally did not have versions pinned for everything. And I learned very quickly, no, you got to do that because people are going to be <laughs> taking this course for a couple of years, and you don't want your stuff to break every few months. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Chris, we've been talking a bit uh, utopian, that is – You do this, you set up the pipeline, it's all automated and it's great. But a lot of of shops have a manual approval process. There's some kind of a human intervention here before things go uh, and are allowed into production. How do you deal with that when we're trying to automate everything?
2: I'd start by figuring out why it's there. Uh, And not in a bad way, but typically the reason those exist is somebody got screwed. Somebody Mm. pushed on the wrong time or, you know, the the system burned down and customers were impacted and they're like, you know what, we're going to put some gates in place because we want to have control over when the change occurs because our butts got chewed out, not yours, something like that. So there's Mm -hmm. there's typically history there and I think it's worth digging into. And and you can certainly emulate that in a pipeline. Uh, And it's actually fairly common, especially if you're working with high, like, legacy or corporate type work where it's like, this is financially impactful there'll be a final approval before prod gets pushed to. And that's fine. I think the goal then is identify, you know, if you, can, if you can marry like the risk that occurred that they're trying to mitigate for with the manual approvals, as well as show improvement with pipelining, because a lot of errors that typically get found through manual testing, manual pushes to production, evaporate when you automate and pipeline because you're able to solve for those problems and consistently solve for those problems. And so that may be that point where you reach a milestone of, hey, we haven't had an issue in four months. Do we need these three manual approvals or could we reduce it to one? And if we can reduce that to one, how long until we get rid of it entirely? I think the mistake that most people make is either a, they assume pipelining means there's it's full, full, full engines forward, you know, like fire the laser beams. Let's hope we get to, you know, get to the death star and, you know, hit that womp rat or whatever. I'm mixing metaphors here, but you know, do the things or that, you know, that, that there, that there's just this need that once you automate, you can't have any manual approvals and it's totally fine but have a plan to eventually retire them once trust has been rebuilt.
1: Right, right. And building up that trust is a big part of it as well. Because I think once you move to a pipeline, you're now going to be delivering and deploying on a faster cadence. And people who are used to, you know, a change window once every two weeks or once a month, now the idea of making changes on a weekly or daily basis, frankly, scares them. (laughs) And so you have to to build up that trust with that group.
2: Yeah, I would say I, I want to pick on a little piece you brought out there, Ned, because you said once you go to the pipeline, you know, it's kind of everything's potentially much better. You, you can make a pipeline that really doesn't do anything. You know, a you know, pipeline <laughs> just says, you know what, Pre- you know, type make, build, whatever, type rake, whatever, for me, and then just puke out an artifact, and then I'm going to still go manually test it. You know, that you can you can make the pipeline as skinny as you want to where it's doing just one task, or it's fully doing all the testing, all the end results. It's about that journey to get it to the point where it's not just puking out the end results of a build process, but it's going through the testing and the validation and everything you need to do to earn that trust. You can point to it and say, here's all the data points showing the test that we ran. Here's that issue you had last time that you filed you know, a JIRA ticket for. It's resolved, committed right here, and we're testing for it, and it won't happen again. And typically something that simple, if you show a business unit you know business owner somebody that's less technical and you translate for them they're like oh that thing there means i'm not gonna have that problem again awesome better make sure you're right but you know (laughs) it's just a way that you can kind of bring them in because that's what they want they just don't want things to break because if they're trying to run you know financial reports or you know some sort of marketing campaign or whatever they want to know the technology is not going to be pulled out from under them like a rug
1: Hmm. right i I think you bring up a good point for anybody who's trying to get into the world of pipeline you don't have to build the full end to end with every testing suite and known to man pipeline the first time like you can start real simple and then add complexity as you go
2: yeah in fact that's that is the way to do it just start simple uh, I, I usually advise take the tasks and do them manually first to make sure they work you know if you have a script you want to run just run the script do it do it step by step by step and then uh, add the least stressful, lowest risk items to a pipeline. Have it do the the boring manual. You know you have to do it. There's no logic to it. Steps, you know, like, hey, you know, you have to put the files over here. Just have it automatically put the files over here. And then from there, you can add unit tests and whatever tests you need. And just taking what you're doing manually and you're putting in code, putting a script (laughs) against it, and then adding that to your fun sandwich that is pipelining.
0: <laughs> yes, I got one kind of concluding question here that goes back to really how you opened this up. Uh, you had made the point that if it doesn't have a good API that I can talk to and can't include in my pipeline, I don't want to work with you. You also kind of implied, and at least that's been the context of our conversation, when an artifact is being deployed, you're consuming public cloud, or that, that that's what I'm hearing from you anyway. I'm not deploying it on something that's on premises very likely. Why is your attitude only public cloud at this point? Is it because of the flexibility of consumption uh, or or something else?
2: Uh, it's less mystical than that. I don't really do a lot of on-prem anymore. Um so most of the environments I'm working with are trying to get off-prem. And so that's really just about, but prior to prior to, you know, making that my my new cloudy job. I certainly did a lot of on-prem pipelining because GitLab CI, for example, you can run that on a Linux box anywhere. You could just put it as a virtual machine. And even if there's not an API I can specifically call, if there's some way I can programmatically call it with a script or a CLI or, I mean, whatever. In some cases, it's like throw a file in a particular directory and it causes you know, an app to trigger. It's weird. It's a weird, weird world out there. But certainly you can do it anywhere. I've just found that, a lot of the magic that comes out of pipelining just isn't a thing on-prem. Like, I'm not building magic servers out of, you know, instances and virtual machines. You know, I, I'm using a hypervisor potentially, which means I need a lot more guardrails on what I'm building and yep. how I'm building it. Because on-prem, I'm worried about capacity. Yep. In the cloud, I'm worried about drip cost. It's a totally different paradigm. So, it means the pipelines have to be geared towards different things, right? So, if you've got... If I'm trying to deploy resources in the cloud, I... Potentially, I've already figured out the best way to build it from a price and cost and performance and whatever perspective. I'm just trying to put it in code and push it out so it's repeatable and whatnot. On-prem, I can't just have it go order me a new server like a pizza and it (laughs) just appears, right? I have to work within those confines. I feel like config management may be a little bit more prevalent as a tool used on-prem because you you have purpose-built hardware and virtualization pools for a thing. Those environments typically have their own methods for rolling out workloads, right? Or some other... some other vehicle that they use i would like it if they would be more pipeline friendly please work on your apis and tooling integrations and things like that and stop making us use java go off on prem Um, but everything else i think it's apples to apples i think you can pipeline pretty much anything you want Uh, it's just the the use cases and the cost models change
0: the the future in your mind is public cloud though in other words if i get my head around how to build my app so that I can deploy it on public cloud in a, in a, in a way that is uh, cloud native, makes sense, pipeline friendly, et cetera. Is that the way I should go? Or do you see that there is still a use case for on, on on-prem and let's leave, let's leave data itself and data governance (laughs) outside of it and just talk about infrastructure uh, at that context.
2: Hmm. I mean, I don't like the idea of like throwing away one for the other. I think there's always going to be you know, we, we always need something to be on-prem. The the thing is, I think we've sort of solved that. that We've cracked that nut, I suppose. We we kind of know how to squeeze a lot of efficiencies out of on-prem. It's just a world where I feel like we spent the last 15 years just virtualizing the piss out of it and squeezing every dime we could out of every square inch of data center space and, and hardware. And now it's like, how many thousands of virtual CPUs can I put? You know, like, who cares? You know, it's just... It, we're we're getting to the edge of what of what we can really squeeze out of that. I feel like cloud. It, some the reason that I chose it is my hundred percent. Like this is what I do right now is because there are a lot of interesting ways that we can do things there. Maybe not to save money, but to make more. So that's nice. Like if we can figure <laughs> out to make the how do we make this application more profitable, more scalable, even cheaper to operate, but we get all these benefits. I think that's really what gets me excited versus, I mean, who really wants to have a job where you're just trying to make a number get smaller? That feels like that's not, that doesn't get me excited in the morning. I'm like, how do we make more money out of this? Make it bigger, better, badder, more adoptable, meet use cases it couldn't do before. That's why I get excited about cloud, not because it's a versus thing.
0: Chris, this has been one of these mind expanding conversations. I love getting the chance to talk to people who've been right buried deeply in it and have had time to form (laughs) strong opinions. So this has been a really, really, really enjoyable conversation. And, and man, I know, I know a lot of people know you and you have a big social media following and all that, but for those folks who don't, would you let them know how they can follow you on the internet?
2: Sure. Uh, It's wallnetwork.com, W-A-H-L and
0: at Chris Wall on Twitter. Very good. Thank you again, Chris. We got to have you back, man, and uh, and talk about more more of this nerdy stuff that you're working keep on. Keep me in small
2: doses. I think otherwise, I'm going to make you lose your audience. But. <laughs> <laughs> Once a
0: year. Well, thanks again for showing up, man, and virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit uh, either of us up on Twitter. Ned and I both are paying attention to uh, Day Two Cloud Show, or If you're not a Twitter person, go out to Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. He's got a form there you can fill out. And if you want to keep up with the very latest of what's going on in IT... Shows like this, um, blogs that we've been keeping up with, and so on. we got a weekly newsletter. It's free. Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff that we find on the internet. We have our own feature articles that we put in there, too. It's free. It does not suck. And you can get the next issue via packetpushers.net slash newsletter. All the back issues are there, too, by the way. If you're just like, I don't subscribe to things. Cool. Just go to packetpushers.net slash newsletter once in a while. Look at the archives at the bottom. You can read every issue that way, too, if you like. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.